Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's message. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to get together tonight. And as we study uh, about ourselves and about your word, help us to have insight, help us to have uh, illumination from the Holy Spirit so that we can understand uh, you and ourselves, reality and everything else around us uh, to make us more like Christ. We pray now you bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, I can't remember where we left off of. Um, so folks, we did 19, 20, well not, yeah, not, uh, uh, so we did 20, okay, so I'm left with a few more, uh, though four, uh, 21 through 24, okay, um, so again, what's the whole point of this is that when you're preparing for perilous times, you need to be able to read people, you need to understand who people are, um, if they'll, they're, they're the kind of people that you can trust, if they're the kind of people that will betray you, um, those kinds of things. And so we're looking on Paul's teachings, and what that means is the theology, the theology of God, the theology of reality, the theology of man, and theology of, uh, uh, of ourselves. And that basically covers all of theology when you look at it. So we're going to finish up here and then move on to uh, another aspect that Paul mentions about how he survived perilous times. So this is part of the last of his teachings, so to speak, is how we, how we read others, how we are supposed to interact with others. And uh, with uh, being uh, on number 21, then let's be able to spot those who are dependable. Um, those, those who are not dependable obviously bring a lot of problems into our lives because you can't trust them for pretty much anything. And that's a big issue about dependability is a trust issue. So these are the kind of people that don't show up at work at time, on time. These are the people that don't show up at all. These are the people who are always sick. Um, um, and for some reason, sickness be, uh, is usually the main excuse for these people. And uh, really, um, the dependability on these people when they refer to sickness is it's not they're really sick. It's that whatever slightly is off on them is enough to call in sick. And there's been people that I've known, Christians that work in businesses, and like for the slightest little thing, um, whether it's a headache or it's a, I, I feel off today or something like that or I'm, I'm very fatigued, they'll take the whole day off. And it's like, I, that's such a bad witness. You know, um, I don't know where that mindset comes from. I don't understand it. But what ends up happening with those people is they, they lose confidence from others in being dependable. And in perilous times, obviously, someone that's dependable is someone that's well, well needed. Because if you can't depend on somebody, that person's not going to be there for you, especially when uh, things get rough. If they're, look, guys, if they're going home from work because they have a slight headache and they're calling in sick because, um, I don't know, they didn't get enough sleep or something like that, that kind of person in difficult times will be the first one to leave you, okay? Because it's just not there. They can't gut it out. They can't, 
for some reason, they're like, I don't know, like a, a glass house, and they're very delicate and weird stuff like that. And that goes for guys and gals. Um, there's people that run out of sick time. They, say they, they take so much sick time. They don't, they don't work through anything. And I'm not saying go to work sick when you're legitimately sick and contagious. I'm talking about just generally I don't feel good. Well, that's about 80% of my days. I don't know about you. I, I don't know. I, I don't feel good 80% of the time. I, I rarely feel like 100%. Um, and, and, and so these people, you know, they have that problem. And therefore, you can't give them anything because they'll always call in sick. They're, they're always bailing on you. And the other thing about de- unde- not, uh, not dependable people is another aspect of them is they will hold out on commitment if it fits their schedule. Okay, So they will commit at the very last minute to do something only if they can't find anything better to do. Okay, so if they have something else going on um, on Sunday morning or the weekend, they're definitely not coming to church because they have found something other, th- other things to do. So coming to church is like uh, they only do it if they have nothing to do, really. I mean, it's like the last resort type of thing in people. And, and, and how do I know this? Because I've seen over the years people are like that. And... Um, you know, they won't come to a Bible study unless they have something, they don't have anything else to do. And um, they they're seem to be looking for an excuse always to get out of commitment. The other thing is about this is um, the convenience of schedule, okay? Um, these people do not like to be tied down to any form of long-term commitment um, for for. for for some reason, probably growing up or somehow related to their upbringing, um, they see commitment as someone else controlling them, controlling what they do, and they, they really rebel against commitment when they're projecting on it control. And commitment is not about control. Um, commitment is about, a lot of times, accountability, and that's not about control. But because of their wrong frame of mind, they will look at commitment as control. And it's not. And that's really hard to deal with when you have somebody that sees commitment as controlling. It's obvious they probably grew up in a controlling environment. They had someone, you know, barking orders to them all the time, even as an adult or whatnot. But that prevents them from actually being committed to anything, really. Um, they want that kind of freedom to do anything they want to do. So you can't build any ministry on that person, okay? You can't build any ministry on a person who can't be dependable and can't commit. You, don't, you, you do not build a church on that person. You do not build a ministry on that person. You do not build a Bible study on that person because they don't want to commit. Now, living in California, we have things a little bit different than back east. And the thing that we fight many times is there's a lot of other things to do in California because the weather's typically better than most of the country. Most of the country, the weather's bad most of the year, so people just automatically go to church because they can't do anything outside. So 
that's kind of their default. And the same thing, I, I've talked to the pastor in Oregon, the, the Calvary Chapel pastor that I spoke at their church one time, told me the same thing. If they have a day without rain, then no one comes to church. So they'll, they'll go outside. And it's like, that's horrible to think of like that and to see that, but that's really true of people. And now, you know, um, the, the dependability of young adults uh, with children is, as, is at an all-time high. And uh, a lot of times that w- what we see from the pastoral staff is uh, the young adults' commitment to sports on Sunday uh, and their commitments to whatever game their kid is playing is overriding any commitment to church, any commitment to being a leader in church, any commitment to Bible study or whatever that is. And they're doing it under the guise of, well, I'm spending family time. This is our family time. Yeah, and that's, not a, that's a lame excuse because you're to put Jesus before your family, actually, not your, not your children before Jesus. And that's where we have the cult of the child a lot of times. So what's happened now, and this is across the board nationwide, every pastor will tell you this, that we're having a hard time with the attendance of young adults because of the, all the junk their kids are involved in. And it's, it's great that kids are involved in a lot of things. You want a well, well-rounded person and doing a lot of extracurricular activities. But why do they always have to have it on Sunday? Well, I already know what the excuse is. Well, it's the only time we can get the fields. Well, so what? Find something else to do. How come you have to make excuses for being gone half the year? So one time I had a deacon that came to us and told us that his daughter's going to be involved in club volleyball. And this was in January, and he says, I'm going to be gone for the next six months. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, well, you know, uh, every Sunday they play in Anaheim, so for the next six months we're going to be going to Anaheim every Sunday. Well, we had to tell the guy, you can't be a deacon. And of course, they're offended by that, but I don't understand why you're offended by that if you're gone half the year and you're supposed to be a deacon who's supposed to be one of the most committed leader in leadership there is in the church other than the pastors, and you can't be here for six months? It's, it, yeah, it's just ridiculous to even think like that. We've had Sunday school teachers that come, show up, uh, that taught the youth, and they would only show up when they teach, and that was 12 times a year. We've had Sunday schools, and then, then when you tell them you can't do that, they get mad and leave the church. And you want to think, and they call, you, they call you a legalist. And you're like, you're only showing up when you teach, and that's 12 times a year. So you're, you're, that's how much you come, and you don't even come to church. So how would you expect to be a teacher if you only come 12 times a year? But that kind of logic doesn't fly with an uncommitted person because they see that as a legalist. I, I hope you understand where I'm coming from because if you don't see that as insane, something's wrong with you too, okay? I'm just gonna put it out there because well, I, 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 what is that? And then, you know, and, and, the, and the response should have been, oh, shucks, you're right. I don't know what I was thinking. But no, it's, you're a legalist, really. I don't know what church you could actually do that in, ever. And, and, and think you can still be a Sunday school teacher to youth when you can't even come to church. It doesn't, how, how does that set an example for anybody, really? And, and then plus, coming to church, by the way, is not legalism. 
It's actually a requirement according to Hebrews chapter 10. So I guess you missed that one. You, you, you know what I mean? Do not forsake the gathering of yourselves as someone in the habit of doing so. And, and this person has obviously got into the habit of not of forsaking the gathering of themselves, of the church, and other people as well. You know? And I'm not saying that your kid can't play sports. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying they, they can't play club. But we would always put the caveat on our kids when they were growing up that, okay, you can play your club sport and you'll play on Saturday, but you're not going to play on Sunday. Why can't they do that? My kids played all the way through. My kids play college baseball now. But we limited them on doing the Sunday thing. I didn't want a kid raised up that I said, you can miss, because that was sending him a message of priority, that your little baseball game is more priority than Jesus. Because he'll remember that when he's an adult. And he'll do it with his kids too, if, if he saw that. So we said, play on Saturday, but just tell the coach we're not gonna play on Sunday. And, and it worked quite, quite fine, right? But here's my question. How come they don't do it? How come they didn't do it? Because they're not committed. They're not dependable people. Their priority is, is definitely wrong. They have the cult of the child in front of Jesus, and they don't realize that. And then they can assuage it by, by, assuage it by saying, well, you know, this is our family time. Baloney. You can have family time the other, seven, uh, other six days and even Sunday afternoon. What are you talking about? This is family time. You're spiritualizing your decision, and it's not a spiritual decision. You just want a scholarship, don't you? See, what the parents won't tell you when they gloss it over. These are Christian parents. When they tell you, well, this is our family time, don't believe that for a minute because usually on the club sports, one parent is going with the kid that plays and the other parent's staying with the other kids. Or the other kids get neglected and they sit there hour upon hour all day long watching a sibling play and they're ignored. That's the reality of it because you know why I was in that world. I know what that world is. So no one can bluff me on it. And then what ends up happening is... They'll make this, well, this, it's not, I didn't make that decision. The coach made a decision. Yeah, but you're a human being. Can't you say no? But they don't say no. Well, it's, you know, the coach wants it. Who cares about the coach? Tell him you're not going to do it. Why can't you say no? And then the other thing is about this, this lack of commitment, using your kids as an excuse because of them playing, you know, whatever, ballet or piano or whatever it might be or volleyball, whatever it might be. Um, what it really comes down to is the parents are allowing it because they don't want to be at church. That's the real issue too. They don't want to be there because if it was a priority to them, they would do it. And so they blame it on the kid and then they, they use a, a thing, well, they, you know, the only way they're going to get to college is through a scholarship, uh, a sports scholarship. I want to say, okay, so your kid's playing baseball, right? Or your kid's playing football, right? Do you know the percentages of high schoolers that get a football or basketball or even a, uh, a baseball scholarship? It's like less than 1%. So your ch child has really no chance of getting one, okay? So don't spin it to me that you're doing this to help your child pay for college. That's baloney, that represents to me, you're trying to get a worldly advantage instead of trusting God to open the door. 
Oh, and little lifelong lesson I'd like to tell everybody that would challenge that. So the mindset out there with these parents, and I'm, I'm harping on this because it's a major problem in our nation, okay? It's a major problem. Got to get a scholarship, got to get a scholarship, got to get a scholarship, got to get a scholarship. Got to play club ball, got to play every Sunday, got to play 145 games per year, which is more than even the NCAA would allow you to play, you know? And it's all about scholarship, all about scholarships. And then they play all these club things, all these club things, all these club things. Okay, so I did an experiment with my own kid. It's a spiritual experiment. And it took me 18 years to figure it out. It's a long experiment. <laughs> but the Lord proved himself. So let me tell you how this 18-year experiment went with my older son. I'm not going to let him do that on Sunday mornings, okay? You can, you can play Monday through Saturday, no problems, but you're not doing it on Sunday morning, okay? And it was just, it, it's not a legalistic thing, it's just that was my priority. I don't want to give him the image that uh, baseball comes in front of Jesus. But we missed out on a lot. Miss out a lot, uh, you know, on scouts. Miss out a lot on all kinds of other things, being able to see him. And we, we missed out on development for him because it, it kind of retarded his development because the more you play, the better you get, obviously. And it, so it, it put him behind the rest of the pack, okay? He was about two years behind the rest of the pack as I'm watching him develop, Okay because the rest of the pack is paying 145 games all year round, okay? And I'm watching this, but I'm still honoring God through it. Guess what happens? Guess what happens? All these guys that he played with that were at his age went nowhere. Nowhere. Yet, out of all of them his age, He's the only one that's right now playing college baseball. How is that possible? How, how, how is it that he was recruited and he didn't get to play his senior season because of the shutdowns? You see what I'm saying? What I'm trying to tell you through an 18-year experiment with the Lord is if you honor God, all you have to do is honor him and he will open the door for you. And he did. Because none of those guys that he played with growing up, they're out pumping gas, so to speak. They didn't make it. They got to their senior year and they failed they, because none of it opened for them because going to the next level is so rare, it's like being struck by lightning. Only a little bit of 1% go on. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because I'm telling you, the parents that sell out for this sports junk and put that first in front of Christ are gonna come out on the losing end when it's all said and done. They don't see it now, but when it's all said and done, they will see it. When the child that they put in all that money and all that time and took them away from Jesus all their, through their teen years, it will shine so bright 
that it will nearly blind them the mistake that they made. And I'm telling you, I did the experiment. And I saw it. What does that mean? It means God honors committed people to him. God honors dedicated people to him. God honors faithful people to him. And you might have to wait 18 years to see God's faithfulness, but it comes. It comes. <clears throat> so that's the kind of person you don't want to be, nor do you want to be around, because they will drag you down. You want to be around people that have the character necessary to do what's right, even if it costs them. That's what you're looking for. That's what you're looking for as an employer. That's what you're looking at uh, you know, in anything you do. Who are the most dependable people out there? Now, using another sports analogy, there was plenty of people at the higher levels in sports that when I pl played in college that everybody has talent at that level. Everybody's an all-star. Everybody was the best on their team. Everybody was. But what I noticed at the higher levels is what separated the men from the boys is those who were the most committed in practicing. Because some guys could just go out there and just survive on raw talent, but it caught up to them after a while because they wouldn't practice. And so what we saw at the higher levels, and you'll see this all the way up to the major leagues, you'll see this in the NFL, it's those guys who not only have the talent, but those who work the hardest and are the most committed and most dedicated are the ones that excel. So you bring that, that illustration into spirituality, well, that, that goes to say that those who are the most committed are the most closest to Christ. Those who are the most faithful to him are, are the ones that are really mature. And really, you can count on them because the, the character's already built into them. And, and who are they becoming like? They're becoming like Christ, right? Is Christ dependable? Yes, of course. So the more you become like Christ, the more dependable you become. The more committed you are to obedience. And, and that's how it works. So that's talking about dependability. Now let's talk about trustworthiness. Now, no relationship can survive um, if you can't trust the other person. I know there's relationships that try to do it without trust, and it's a, it's a disaster um, because they don't trust what the person's doing with money. They don't trust the do, what the person's doing sexually. They don't trust the person with their, what they're doing uh, with their job or whatever. And that lack of trust destroys the relationship. It's impossible to have a relationship with someone you can't trust. Well, why is the person not trustable? Because they're a liar. They're a habitual liar. Okay, we talked about habitual liars, but a, a liar is not trustworthy, okay? And they lie about what they're doing with money. They lie about what they're doing sexually. They lie about what they're doing you know, in their, at their job or whatever. And that kind of person is not who you want to be in a foxhole with when the heat is coming down. They will abandon you because they're so untrustworthy. They will lie to you and say they're with you when they're really not. And that kind of person is deadly. That kind of person will betray you. And I think for the most part, um, <coughs> the, the, probably the two most horrible things that happen to all of us 
is rejection. I think that's a, a number one issue. And then a kind of a, 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 a parallel with rejection is betrayal. And if you have been rejected and betrayed, it's like the worst thing that can happen to you, that feeling. And it's because of the person that you were, you were trusting in is not trustworthy. And you got burned by them. Now, here's my question. Will the person learn from being in a relationship with a person that was untrustworthy? I hope so, because if they're not, they'll hook up with another person that's untrustworthy with the same characteristics and believe them and then be burned again by rejection and betrayal. Now, what is the, the untrustworthy person trying to do? They're covering for something. That's why they lie. They are covering for something. They're covering up themselves. They're covering up what they did. It's the whole thing of Adam and Eve. Once they trespassed the Lord's uh, law uh, of eating from the tree, what did the first thing they do? They went and hid, and then they made fig leaves. So untrustworthy people create fig leaves for their lives. That's all they do. We call that in modern terms a front. They create a front for everyone to see. But it's really a fig leaf that they're hiding behind. And the fig leaves uh, covers up their nakedness, which relates to the person's shame. They're ashamed of themselves. They're ashamed of what they've done. And so they hide behind that. But since they hide behind it, they have to lie. Because they, they can't let you see the real person because they're afraid of rejection. They're afraid of betrayal themselves. So they lie. Um, and then basically what they're doing through the lying is managing the relationship through the lie. That's how, that's how they're, they're dealing with relationships. So everything's based on a lie. They are, they are not who they say they are. Now, I have many couples that come to me in counseling and you know, right off the bat, they'll say, look, man, I thought I was getting this, but this is what I got. And like, you know, they go from, you know, the princess to the wicked witch of the West all of a sudden, or they go from Prince Charming to a toad, you know, and, and they're like, I, I don't understand this. Well, well, when I talk to them, I say, well, you married someone that was untrustworthy that gave a front, and how come it, it is that you didn't see through the front? Now, some of these, these guys and gals are really, really good uh, of giving a false front and very good at hiding themselves. And uh, after a while, you can hide so long, and then the, the, the thing that they're hiding actually comes out. The Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde finally comes out. And um, they're untrustworthy. They're untrustworthy with uh, the opposite sex. They're untrustworthy with all kinds of stuff. So what do you do if you're married to someone that, like that? Well, if you don't have biblical grounds for divorce you better start putting on major boundaries on the individual to keep them from lying to you. And if they do lie, you better, the consequences better be hard enough to where it pays, it pays, uh, it pays pretty hard to lie. And, and, and that's where you have to start if you're engaged in that kind of relationship. Now, if you're not, and this is like a person you work with, a person in your family that you don't really don't have to deal with, your best option is to stay away from them because you can't trust them. They will stab you in the back at some point in time 
because because a lot of it is also about uh, kind of narcissism. That's what they're covering up. They know that deep down inside they're self-absorbed and they're not who they really are. And, and so they know that and that's what they're covering up. The, sh- the shame is involved in what, what and who they think they are. And um, unfortunately, if you're dealing with an untrustworthy person that's a narcissist or self-absorbed, um, that person um, can really stab you in the back. And I, I, I would try to distance myself as far away from that person as I possibly can. Um, because, man, okay, it's one thing to lie, but it's another thing if you're a narcissist liar. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a hard one to deal with. You, you can't nearly have a relationship with that person. Um, can't trust them with kids. Can't trust them with adults. Can't trust them with giving them anything. It, it's just... They don't keep jobs very long, by the way. They go from job to job, pretty much. Now, let's move to 23, the entitlement mentality. The entitlement mentality. Well, unfortunately, this comes from trauma and pain many times, or it comes from uh, someone giving a person an ego that's beyond, you know, biblical limitations and... Um, anything they've ever accomplished. Now, what do I mean by biblical limitations? Well, the biblical limitation is this. You're made in the image of God. That's your value. That's your worth, your image of God. And that Christ died for you. That's your value and your worth. Okay, that should be there. At the same time, you also have a sin nature that's desperately wicked and that can lead you astray. And that's what you have to understand about yourself, those two facets. So one is value. One is your liability. Okay, so we all have the value and we all have the liability. Okay, it's, it's what we have to live with. Okay, okay. If you, that's the biblical limitation. If you get beyond the biblical limitation above it, which means I don't count my sin nature as affecting me very much, then um, the, the ego takes over. And pride takes over, okay? And, and so you don't have the right balance anymore. Now you're, you're just one-sided. And that's where pride stems from many times. If you go below, that means you're, you're putting your image, you're not considering your image of God, and you're just focusing in on this in nature as a decrepit worm, okay? And, and, and Calvinism does a lot of that. Um, Arminian does the opposite. Arminianism puts the person too high and Calvinism puts the person too low. It's not the biblical level where the person should be. And because of those extremes, it affects their theology, okay? To where they're so arrogant to say, an Arminian is is so arrogant to say that they can lose their salvation. Um, And then a a, a Calvinist is so low of decrepit, depraved humanity that really um, you don't have any free will. And and God has to uh, create faith in you in order for you to be saved. You're not savable in the sense that you can't express any faith. And therefore, God has to change your nature in order for you to believe. And that's the two extremes, obviously, based off not understanding 
cosmology, not understanding who God is, not understanding who humans are. Anyway, it affects their theology. Okay, so the problem with entitlement mentality is they go too high up here on the balance, okay? They're not understanding the sin nature and what it's doing to them, and it's the sin nature that's sending the pride up, but since they're so smart, since they're so good, since they're such a wonder kind, they think they're entitled to people catering to them, okay? That's what we have done with the kids in public schools, and that's what we've done to the millennials and Gen Z, and, and we keep doing it. We, we are projecting onto them an ego that is beyond where the Bible says they are. And when you do that, that means that um, you're giving them special, speciality for not accomplishing anything, not being anything, just existing. They're, they're amazing, just existing. Um, and, and therefore, they're entitled to things. Well... That's wrong, obviously. Even though I'm made in the image of God and you're made in the image of God, that doesn't entitle you to anything. Does that entitle, being made in the image of God, what does that entitle you to? Does it entitle you to healthcare? Does it entitle you to college? Does it entitle you to a free phone? Does it entitle you to, to you know, uh, EBT cards? Or whatever, or whatever like the government doles out that thinks people are entitled to. I mean, think about that. May, being made in the image of God, what does that entitle you to? You see what I'm saying? Well, what it does entitle you is you have the right as a parent not to have your authority challenged by your own child. Okay? Fifth commandment. Then you, you move in, thou shalt not murder. You're entitled to life. That's what you're entitled to, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. You're entitled to marriage. Thou shalt not steal. You're entitled to private property. And then, and then uh, thou shalt not lie. You're entitled to the truth. And then thou shalt not covet is the foundation of what you're entitled to. So no one should want what God has given you. Thou shalt not covet. So that's what you're entitled to, okay? No more, no less, but that's what you're entitled to. So to go beyond the Ten Commandments, which shows you what you're entitled to as an image bearer, is to go beyond the biblical norm, okay? So when this entitlement stuff, and you hear about it, entitlement programs, right? You hear about that in the government, entitlement programs. And now in California, we're doing reparations, Right, and we're giving millions and millions of dollars away because of something that happened 200, uh, 150 years ago or whatever it is. What, what are we doing? That's entitlement. Entitlement is found in no biblical thing. And people just say, where's my money? Where's this? I'm owed this, I'm, I'm this, and so I owed this. Transgender, I'm owed this. LGBT, I'm owed this. Entitlement, entitlement, okay? So you get it from people pumping you up unnecessarily and making you special. And then the other thing is entitlement, you get it from pain and trauma a lot of times. So you can get it both ways. So what do you mean by pain and trauma? Well, most people have went through horrific things um, that they, they don't want to repeat in life. And it, it was horrible on them and they experienced pain and they experienced trauma, okay? The problem is if you don't process that with truth, the devil will take it and make you become a victim 
And that victim mentality will make you think that you're entitled to special behavior for how bad you were treated back then. Okay? And you see this a lot of times um, with people who, like, are easily offended. Like, you know, people, like, they think, well, so-and-so snubbed me because they didn't say hello to me today. And, and then, like, they make a big deal about it, and they go home and they brew on it. So-and-so didn't, didn't affirm me today, and I needed my affirmation today because, you know, if so-and-so knew what I went through even this week, they would have said hello and at least said, I will pray for you or something like that. It's weird how they go through that mentality. And if they go through, the, if they continue with that, then they'll tell their spouse and they get their spouse riled up. And then if they want to take it even further, they'll go straight to me and tell me about it and say, so-and-so didn't say hi to me. And I think they're rude, Brandon. I think you should do something about that person. Yeah. That's how bad it gets. And, you know, I'm nice to people, and I'm like, dude, you know, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, I'm not, I'm not getting into your little nonsense. And, and it really, it's like Eunuchy and Syneche fighting there that Paul, you know, the two women were fighting, and Paul's like, dude, just figure it out. You know, it's just, you're wasting the apostles' time. Don't do that to him. Figure it out yourself. You're grown women, figure it out. But that's what happens to people, right? Because of an entitlement mentality. So entitled people are the most critical of others as you will ever face because they feel that you should treat them a certain way because of all they went through. That's not how it works, guys. Now, we've all been through our junk, there's no doubt about it, but that doesn't, no one owes you anything. No one owes you anything because everyone else went through something bad. So how are we going to pay them back? How are we going to pay you back? We can't. You have to wait on God to make everything right in the next life. So you can't cop a victim entitlement mentality, well, I didn't have this, so poor me, you should feel, more, feel sorry for me. That's the wrong attitude. You don't want people feeling sorry for you. You want to be seen as a survivor, not a victim. That you want to be to have the testimony saying, boy, they went through a lot, but boy, they made it out, and look how good they're doing now. That's what you want people to know you of. Not to feel sorry for you. What pathetic person wants people to feel sorry for them? That's pathetic. That's weakness. That's that's beta male stuff. Why, why would you want people to feel sorry for you? That's sick. You want people to say, man, that's, that guy's a fighter. That woman's a fighter. That woman's a survivor. That's what you want to project. Not this, I, I'm owed good behavior. It's funny, amazing. Um, you can see this entitlement mentality when people come from other churches and they come in, into Rock Harbor. And of course, no one knows them from Adam because they're new. But at the previous church that they left, because they, they got into a fight with somebody, probably, um, usually the pastor. So they come over here, and, and of course, they come over here expecting to be treated like a god, like they were in their previous church. And then they come to Rock Harbor, no one knows them. And the first thing they say, oh, this is the most unfriendly church I've ever seen. Well, no one knows you. We had our greeters talk to you, but, you know, no one knows. Well, this is the most rude. I just want to let you know, Pastor, this is the rudest church. I said, well, I don't know what you got, what kind of treatment you got back at your old church, but you need to give it about six months to let people know you. 
not just one day. And, and the problem is, I already know where that mindset's coming from. They were treated a certain way of entitlement at the previous church they came to. They come here, and they don't get the same treatment. And then they, 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 their little ego is hurt. And so, they're, oh, I've got to find another church that's friendlier. Yeah, I know that. Narcissist, which is kind of the basis of all of this, if you look at it. And uh, it, it's, uh, it, you know, narcissism is involved in pretty much all of these bad traits. And it's the idea of self-love. Um, and many people, you know, you hear this in modern psychology and you hear this, uh, a lot of memes going around and you just gotta learn to love yourself. Oh no, that's not your problem. You love yourself too much, that's the problem. And, and don't mistake what Jesus said, love others like you love yourself. He wasn't referring to narcissistic love. He was basically saying, treat others as basically you would want to be treated. You want, you want the same self-respect that you, you get for yourself. You respect yourself. You should give that self-respect to other people and vice versa. He wasn't saying you need to learn how to love yourself. No, that's, that's, that's not what he's talking about. That's the problem is that you love yourself too much. The problem we have with the sin nature is it, it wants to make us a narcissist. It wants us to think that the world revolves around us. It wants us to think that we're the only being on the planet. It wants us to think not about others. And it wants to just put ourselves on a pedestal and become God in the flesh. That's what it really wants to do. So you have to fight narcissism. We all have to fight it from our sin nature that pulls us in that direction. So here's a narcissist, and I was kind of, I heard somebody talk about that, about right now what's going on in the culture is a, um, we're having boundaries being crossed on a vertical level and a horizontal level. And I think this, this is a good, it's a good analogy, it's a good illustration of this. And uh, how we're returning back to the Tower of Babylon. And, and really, when you look at it, narcissism is at the core of this. Okay? So right now in culture, here we are. God created us, and we're the top of creation. Okay? We're different than the animals because we're made in God's image, and here we sit. We're made in his image, but we're not him. And then the animals and the creation are below us, and we're not the, the animal, and we're nor are we the, the, the creation, because the creation is made for humans, okay? So we're right here in the middle, okay? That's our boundaries. We are not to become God, right? And we're not to become animals and creation in terms of the lower order. We're creation right here, okay? Much like an angel. So the analysis on that was, was pretty good because we're returning to back to the Tower of Babel. And what was the, the problem with the Tower of Babel? The Tower of Babel was breaking the boundaries between God and man and breaking the boundaries between man and creation in both aspects. So at the Tower of Babel, they were using technology to break through to the spiritual realm to become like God. And that's what the tower on the top was focused in on. The focus was like CERN, developing a spiritual portal into the spiritual realm, okay? That's what CERN is doing, right? And they're finding all kinds of weird stuff out 
from CERN that yes, they have tapped into the demonic realm, the spiritual realm, and that's exactly what the Tower of Babel was trying to do, and, and we're doing that now. We're using technology to try to become God. And you know, in the second half tonight, we're gonna look at AI and a little bit more uh, deeper look at it, but that's really what AI technology is about, is about humans becoming gods, okay? And, and that's what Babylon was doing. It was always breaking the boundary between God and man, okay, with technology. But then what was it doing to erase the boundaries between man and animals and, create, and you know, the land, the trees, and the rocks? Well, it was erasing that boundary, and that's where you have the hedonism, paganism that came from that, right? So you have the top trying to become like God and then acting any way you want to totally pagan, hedonistic, do whatever makes you feel good type of mentality. And that's the blurring or the erasing of the lines between man and the creation. Because at that point, man turns into an animal. He stops functioning in his, his being made in the image of God and now starts functioning on the basis of desires like an animal would. And you can see this in the sexual realm today, that when people go crazy in the sexual realm, they're acting upon their basis instincts without any truth, with it, even ramifications. And so hence, we have the dawning of pedophilia, the dawning of, of all these weird things like bestiality and all kinds of weird stuff. Because the boundaries have now been erased. That's what Babylon was doing. So Babylon erased the boundaries between God, uh, man and creation. And now why, that's why we see a return of ancient paganism now. And then this is why we see high technology at the same time. So you have hedonism out of control, technology out of control. And it, what does it put it? Where does it put man? In the middle of chaos. In chaos. There's no lines anymore. Okay. So if you put man with no boundaries between him and God and him and the animals and him and the, the earth, okay, what you start having is a massive narcissist starting to develop in every human being that is out of control. So out of control, it will, the narcissism will get hostile to anyone who tries to stop it from being God and stop it from hedonistic practices. And so you have this monster that gets created right in the middle, okay? The person has lost their distinctives of what it means to be made in the image of God, and they don't even think they have a sin nature. So everything's, everything's moral to them. Everything's allowed by them. And what you have is a Frankenstein monster with humanity that's out of control. And that's where we're going. This is what has already started. And obviously you can see how God's gonna have to rein this in and stop it. Because we will, in that situation, mankind will destroy itself. We're on a path right now to destroy ourselves because we're erasing all boundaries, all boundaries. And so narcissism is like the most dangerous of the elements in all of this because of the monster it creates, okay? 
Now, let me tell you some bad news about narcissism to the degree of the narcissism. If the person goes fully narcissistic, there's no coming back. All the, all the science, all the reports, all the evidence suggests that once a, a, a person goes full-blown narcissist, they don't come back from it. Okay? Now, we all have degrees of narcissism, understand that. So we're not, I'm not saying you can't come back from that. I'm talking about like you go 100%. Okay? You go full Monty on the whole thing, you ain't coming back. You're now insane at that point in time, right? And uh, either they lock you up or, or something happens to you, but that will happen. That's how dangerous narcissism is because of the self-love. It, it pulls you in that direction. And so um, you gotta be real careful about this. Now, who in the world would hook up with one? As, de as deadly as that is, people marry them. Who would marry them? Yeah, doctor. Can you comment on the commonality between narcissism and grieving of the Holy Spirit? Oh, man. Yeah, well, okay. So, grieving the Holy Spirit, obviously, as, as, as doctor mentions, is you're not obeying. Okay, so you're, you're, you're committing a trespass, you're sinning, and anytime you do that, you grieve the Holy Spirit. He's, he doesn't like it when you do that, so he has an emotional reaction to it because of that disobedience. Now, the way you get self-right is confess it, repent, move on, for, ask for forgiveness, okay. But as you're doing this, when you're breaking a law, what are you in effect saying? You're acting as a narcissist who says there's no boundaries for me, right? Remember I told you, the narcissist is no boundaries between God and him and no boundaries between him and the world, the hedonistic world. So obviously, that person's right in the middle and they're grieving the Holy Spirit and it's ongoing and if there's no repentance for it, at some point, God will intervene and say enough is enough with this kind of mentality because you continue to keep breaking my laws and breaking my laws in the same area or whatever it is, and you, you don't confess, you don't repent, you don't ask for forgiveness, and I'm not gonna let this keep going on. And that's why he takes some believers early in life home because of that discipline. So the, you know, it's a serious thing to grieve the Holy Spirit because narcissism disobeys. Narcissism believes the person's a God, and believes that he can do anything they want to do. I mean, a, a good picture of a narcissist, it'd be like the Greek gods, okay? Like, you know, uh, Apollo or something like that. The, you know, the Greek gods could do all these malevolent things and no consequences, right? Because they were the gods and they could play games with human beings and they didn't care. And then, then they would have hedonistic sexual pleasures with the other gods or rape a human or something like that, right? Okay, that's a picture of narcissism, is a Greek god. That's a picture of that. And as you can see in our culture, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And, 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 and think about the ultimate in playing God. I'm going to decide what gender I am, 
whoa, you are now erasing the lines between you as a human, a creature made in his image, now going to his level to call it out that I'm this when he says, no, you're this. You have crossed that, that line. You are now acting like God. That's how serious that sin is, by the way. The transgender sin is a creation sin. It's not only a sexual sin, it's a creation sin. Because you're, you're, And it's a sin against God. There's horizontal sins, but boy, howdy, when you sin against God, which is a blasphemous remark saying, no, I will call myself what I want to call. <laughs> now, let me give you some Hebrew insight into this. The person who has the authority is the one who names, okay, in the Hebrew culture. So when you see Adam and all the animals brought to him, what was he doing? He's naming them. So God gave him delegated authority and he starts naming all the animals. What it shows that Adam has authority over the animals because he names them, okay? So when God says, I create male and female, that one's a male by name, that one's a female by name, that means it's his prerogative. It's his sovereignty that decides that. And he's not making, he's not making mistakes. So if God is not making mistakes and these people go against him, they are in effect blaspheming the creator. That's what that really is. It's a major sin. Thank you. I've heard you mention before in the past with beheading that the reason some of the beheadings were happening was because they were trying to destroy God's creation or the way God created someone. Um, I heard someone talking the other night about the transgender community and um, being a mental illness. I mean, don't you see any like demonic activity there? I mean, would, uh, it, would you consider it a, a mind thing or a demonic thing? It's, it's, it can be both. It can be one or the other or, or it can be both. Um, there's no doubt um, in the psychiatric world, they diagnose, they used to, two years ago or three years ago, whatever it was, they diagnosed the, uh, transgenderism as mental illness, okay? From just a purely scientific level, it's mental illness and that's always how they diagnosed it. Now, the new trend then is, is what we're seeing is there's a demonic element in it, okay? And the demonic element, how, how do you see that? Well, it's look how rapidly it's spreading, okay? There's the demonic element because we've always had people that questioned their gender, you know, and you, you remember you, you would hear stories and it was minuscule, right? It was minuscule, but again, they put them on the level of mental illness. Now, obviously, the American Psychiatric Association has changed its definitions, to say it's not mentally ill, it's normal, which is wrong. But there's no doubt, Dennis, uh, you can sometimes see it, that is a mental illness. In other cases, you can see it as demonic. And in other cases, you can see it as both. So it just depends on the individual. But I see the whole transgender movement as demonic. That is something we have never seen. And what I mean by that is the explosion of it, right, um, is it, it couldn't have exploded that fast on pure human means. It has been doing by, it's being done by demonic. 
And then, let's just put it one more step. When you start seeing the transgender start going towards pedophilia, okay, then that's another level of demonic activity, right? That's beyond. Pedophilia straight out is demonic, okay? It's, it's like sacrificing a child to Moloch or, or Baal or whoever. That's that on that level. And uh, uh, you can't get more serious than, than hurting and harming a child, not only physically, but sexually. You ruin, you, you'll actually ruin that child for life almost. It'll be very difficult to recover from that. Trust me, I've counseled people. I've counseled people that have had the most egregious things happen to them sexually in satanic cults. And I'm telling you what, they're never right. They're never right after that. And when you go through satanic ritual abuse sexually, you're scarred for life. I, I can see why God would be so angry at that because you've ruined that person for life. Yeah, they can function in life, but they're not the same anymore. They've really been messed up. It's, yeah, where am I at? Yes. Oh, don't, doesn't that also, like the whole transgender community, don't they also go along with like the entitlement, like super heavy because of the whole pronouns thing? Yeah. So now we have to call them by their preferred pronouns, but dear Lord, if we use like ma'am or sir anymore, right? Yeah, it, you're hitting the nail on the head and that's coming from the narcissism and the narcissism, again, with the upper level, um, of breaking the boundaries with God, that's them acting as if God, and you better call me this, that, or they, or whatever. And you think about how God wants us to refer to him. He wants us to refer to him as a he. Why did he do that? Because he is wanting to, us to know that he's masculine, okay? So when God says, I am this, and you are that, that's the end of the argument, okay? So when somebody says, I'm gonna change my pronoun to be this opposite of, of what I was given by God, it's narcissism, no doubt. And it's an erase, eraser of the, the, the sovereignty of God versus the sovereignty of man. And that's, yeah, it's all from narcissism, no doubt about it. It could only be from narcissism. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So getting back to the kids, what kind of accountability are the parents, the doctors that are pushing this on these young kids that are seven, eight, nine, ten? Yeah. What kind of punishment is that for them? Because our <laughs> goal as parents, our number one goal is to get our kids back to the Lord. So what kind of punishment is there awaiting for them for all this? Well, there's two, there's two forms of punishment. Or actually, I'll say three. One is... The fact that they have allowed this to happen to their child, number one, means they're under judgment, and the fact that they have been given over, Romans 1, okay? The fact that you would let your child mutilate themselves, and you pay for it, and you do this to them, that is on a level of wickedness we have not yet seen since, like, the Canaanites, okay? So that's judgment number one. They have already been given over to their desires, to their lustful desires, and them doing that to their children, and uh, it's same thing as when uh, a mom grooms their child to be gay. And, you know, you read, you, you read case reports on this when you're in counseling, and you're like, you have a mom that uh, won't give affection unless the boy acts like a girl. Okay? That, that's real true case studies, right? 
and the boy he has to dress up in a dress or would do uh, play with dolls in order to get the affection of the mom that he he will turn out to be gay so there's a lot of environmental factors that are going on in the home that create this it's that's why and it happens really early on because of the parents that's why they mistake it and say well i was born this way i don't know any other way no no you were you were um you were nurtured this way at such an early age that you can't remember when it started. That's what starts happening. And it's usually a mom or a dad or somebody, a grandma, a grandma doing something about that. Nurturing, putting it in society and all those other things. Okay, that's one judgment. Second judgment, the person will then receive temporal judgment in this life, okay? And the temporal judgment um, will be in some type of form of a shortened life, okay? Their life will be shortened by God, okay? The third judgment is if this person doesn't get saved. Notice how I didn't, I didn't say saved and then saves them from temporal judgment. You can be saved and still have a shortened life for what you did, okay? So let's say they're saved. Uh, if they're saved, then their penalty goes to the cross. If they're not saved, a person who hurts children will be at the lowest depths, the most torment in the lake of fire right next to Satan and Hitler. Because you messed with the, uh, the most vulnerable of the image bearer, okay? We're an image bearer, but a child is a vulnerable image bearer that can't protect itself. So when you attack that child as an image bearer, then you can expect the most torment akin to Hitler in the lake of fire. Because I can already tell you, and you already know what Jesus's mindset is on hurting one of the little ones. Remember? Look, that is the most graphic. He said it would be better if we killed you right now on the spot. If you look at the, what he said, it would be better right now if we killed you before you even did it, that we would go and tie you around a millstone that would uh, you know, you know, smash grain, tie you to that on your neck and throw you into the deepest ocean and drown you and never see your body again because it would be eaten by the fish in the sea and destroy you. So I want you to see how graphic that is for Jesus. This is not, you know, tiptoeing through the tulips Jesus, right? This is him coming out. You mess with one of these kids, you can expect this kind of punishment. Now, when I see that, that's how I know how serious he is on this. And I, that's how I equate it to, the, to their torment in hell. This, they will not have the same torment as the garden variety pagan Mormon that just lived a moral life. That Mormon will be beaten with fewer blows, but they will be beaten with more blows, as Messiah said. To whom much is given, much will be required. And when children are given to you, that is much given. And you're required to take care of that. So it's coming to them. So there's three forms of judgment, and that's where it ends up. It won't be a pretty picture. Uh, and they will burn in that lake of fire forever, never ending for what they did if they don't get saved, if they don't get saved. Okay, anything else about narcissism? Where am I at? Okay, yeah, sure, go ahead. Um, the, do you think that Satan is a narcissist and 
that the five I wills, the yes. only one, the only one I could remember is the fifth one. Do the other four support uh, a mindset oh, of yeah. narcissism? Uh, absolutely. I will ascend on high. I will be above the, uh, the clouds. I will be above the angels. I will sit on the mountain. All that stuff, complete narcissism, complete. I mean, that Satan would be the ultimate example of that. There's no doubt about it because narcissism is a form of, uh, of craziness too. It's not just self-love. It's you're crazy too at the same time. And that's why people ask, why would Satan try to attack God? Why would Satan try to, because uh, he's going to make a run on the, God's throne in, in the midpoint of the tribulation. And you're thinking, what are you thinking? And then Michael fights him off and sends him back to the earth and with his armies, right? So the, the, the run on heaven is, is thwarted. And then at the same time, Jesus comes back at the second coming. And the, the passages say that the Antichrist and his armies fight the Son of God at the second coming. And it's like Satan really believes like a human army could actually stop the Alpha and the Omega. And you would say, well, well that's, that's just dumb. No, no. It's narcissistic to believe that. Because narcissists believe they are God. They believe they can do the impossible. They, the, the narcissist believes, you know, that all things are possible in his power or her power. So Satan, this is why people, they can't figure that out. And it's real simple. You go insane. So the final ending of society is this glob of narcissism and you go mentally ill along with the demonic realm. And demonics make you mentally ill. So, so sort of, that's, 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 a, that's a great point uh, about Satan. He's the ultimate one. And he demonstrates it too by just ridiculous things. Trying to attack God, what are you crazy? Like, wow, good point. Um. Pastor Philip Lee comes once a month. Yes, he does. Saturday. Mm -hmm. So I've learned through experience with my kids that this is a hit on them. Yes. So one of my girls, so Pastor Philip Lee had a, um, a review, and one of my girls got all the answers correct, where the other adults couldn't answer those questions correctly. Mm. So my question is, at what percent do you see this growing in your counseling in our personal congregation? In the, the effect In our personal congregation? Our personal congregation. 50%. Easy. I can answer that real quick. About 50% I have, have, a, have a thing of narcissism in them. The people I counsel with. There's no doubt about it. And probably Philip Lee might see an even higher percentage. I don't, I don't do much counseling anymore, but when I did... I would say about 50% have narcissistic tendencies. Again, not full-blown, not full-blown, but have narcissistic tendencies. That's actually causing the problem in their relationships. And the problem is, they think the problem is the other person and the problem is really them and they won't ever want to see it. They won't admit it. Some do, but then they don't know how, they, they, we try to take them into um, getting the narcissism out of them, which is very difficult. Um, but what, what I find is I have about a 10% success rate in, in getting them to admit they're a narcissist and then working on getting that out of them, okay? What, what happens to the rest of them? Well, the, the, the rest of the 50%, um, 
I bring them all the way up to where it's at. I let them look at it and identify it, and that's as far as they go with it. And they think, mistakenly, they're healed because they identify it. That is wrong. You may identify whatever's going on inside of you. Oh, I'm a narcissist, or I, you know, I, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this. Okay, fine, great, we got one step. Now we, go to, we need to go to the other 25 steps. But people will stop on identification and become a, 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 a trained psychologist. Oh, I'm this, I'm this. But they never change. They never change. They think identifying is the change, and it's no, you, you're not gonna change. You have to do the hard work, and that's, Monica, what they don't wanna do. They realize that as long as they've been a narcissist or when these tendencies started to develop, whether it's from a trauma, where it's from a pain, or whatever, when it developed, it will take just that amount of time to get it out of them. And they don't wanna wait on that. And I said, look, man, this is a lifelong struggle. We all have to struggle with this. So you, you ready? You're, you're ready for the next 10 years? Oh no, I don't want that. I, I need a magic pill for you, me to swallow, and then I'm free. Well, doesn't Christ do miracles? Yeah, he will. But usually I don't see him take away narcissism out of a person because he wants them to learn. So my results are not good. My results are not good. It's hard. Now, that's Christians who say they obey Christ, okay? They don't obey them all the way. It's not a knock on them. It's just, it's just reality. That's just the reality of people. Now, take that and see what I would say about the outside culture. Forget it. They have no chance. They have no chance because you have to have an overarching principle that has authority over you saying you're doing wrong, you're doing wrong, you're doing wrong, which would be God of the Bible, right? You, so if you don't have the God of the Bible over you and you've made a Santa Claus God who never is on you about your narcissism, I know where the culture goes. It goes into chaos and destroy, and then the people actually destroy themselves. Those people that are that have turned into to transgender, they're going to destroy themselves. You know why? Because the rate of suicide goes up twenty percent once they have the transgender surgery. So they will kill themselves. So they will destroy themselves. You see what I'm saying? It just continues to go up. It doesn't release them of of uh, depression. It creates more, so much more. They kill themselves. So if if Again, that's my take on, on what I've experienced in all these years, so 23, 24 years of counseling. Um, so if that's the success rate in the church, it's pretty grim out there. It's really grim. I mean, you could see the narcissism just oozing out of Hollywood, right? Oozing out of the, the music industry. And I, I was listening to somebody, some gal was commenting on Hollywood, and it's like, is it just an automatic, if you're, you're a child of a Hollywood star, that you are all messed up? Is it just an automatic? And so the, the question is, does Hollywood make you like that, or do you come into Hollywood like that? What do you think? Do you, you come into Hollywood like that, a narcissist? Or does Hollywood make you a narcissist? Chicken before the egg. 
I want you to chew on that. Okay. So, Pastor, uh, so with these last two that we've covered, wouldn't you say that the church growth movement and these types of things have really been Ooh, the biggest boy, factors boy. probably with the how our culture is now? Yeah. And the reason why I say that is just because it almost is like we're, we've, we've taken – we're, we're just tickling ears, and now nobody can handle. It's almost like you can't handle the whole counsel of God. And matter of fact, like you talked about on Sunday, we have to, we're our brother's keeper. Yes. And here we are. This is the kind of stuff that is, it's almost like we, the church has really fostered this and then, that's, I don't know. I just Michael, to see. You, you need to write a column and a blog uh, for that. You, you nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. I wasn't going to get into the church thing, but yeah, the church growth movement fed narcissistic um, tendencies. How so? How did the church growth movement foster entitlement and narcissistic attitudes? Well, number one, in the church growth movement formula that started in the early 80s, it was to tell people that they're okay, God, God accepts you the way you are, and you don't, you don't need to change, that you're perfect the way you are. That's, that was the first thing. So that fed a narcissistic. So remember, remember, narcissism is an out-of-balance idea of humans where you have made in the image of God and then the sin nature. So what ends up happening in the church growth movement, they took away the sin nature and said, you're wonderful, you're wonderful, you're wonderful. And every Sunday was a pep talk or a motivational speech of how great you are, right? And so if I'm so great, I don't even need Jesus, right? That's why they took down the cross, okay? So you have that, okay. So Michael, let's, let's feed the entitlement mentality. So you got the church growth movement telling them they're great, but also do at the same time saying, we need to provide you this, and we need to provide this, and need we to provide this. And so it became the era of the programs. The era of the mega church programs. And churches were trying to do everything to have every program under the sun so that the cafeteria Christian, the narcissist, the entitlement mentality, I want this for my kid. I want a, karate, a Christian karate class for my kid. I want a Christian yoga class for my kid. I want to do uh, Zumba for the women. I want a, so I want a Zumba class for the women. I want Club Scouts to meet here. I want this program. I want that program. And I want childcare on every program. Or I'm not coming. And the churches did it. So now, guess what? We got people leaving our church because, well, you don't have childcare on this night. No, we don't. We don't even have a building. Are you clueless? <laughs> What's wrong with you? But, oh, yeah, and, and you'll hear stupid things like that. And it's like... Why can't you just accept whatever you're given? Oh, because the problem is you have an entitlement mentality and you came from a church that catered to your entitlement mentality and gives you every program under the sun, even an Avon class. <laughs> right? Because that's what, I, that's, if you go to the megachurch, you'll look at a list of all these programs. 
Way down workshop, Gwen Shamblin, you know, that kind of stuff. What? what so when is the church involved in, we're going to have, uh, you know, a way down workshop? We're, I mean, what are you talking? Can you imagine the Apostle Paul say, uh, going through that list? Okay, we have, um, um, what is it? A support group for clowns have been in the circus. We have, we have, you know, an Avon makeup uh, teaching seminar. We have, uh, what? What would Paul say? See, this is ridiculous. What are you guys doing? You have become a, a, a super mall to Christians. A social club. A social club, right? And that's, that's what the church, now, now I, I'm, I'm going extreme and I'm using hyperbole, but you know exactly what I mean. They have every program under the sun. I can tell you this, even if I had the buildings, I'm not gonna have every program under the sun because you know why? It won't fit the church's mission. Right. It won't. And, that's, and what you start realizing, some of these churches have programs just to have a program to, to, to do whatever. And it's really not a spiritual ministry. It's not discipling. It's not evangelizing. It just exists. And now, in this new era, where you're, you're supposed to run lean and mean, they're expecting all this and say, sorry, we don't do that. That's not the agenda. That's not the mission. I'm sorry. This is not a social club. And we're a church, not a social club. Go, you want to, the social club? Go over to the social club. We're not that. Anyway, got questions. Go ahead, Alfonso. Yeah, anyways, uh, yeah, if the world, if the, if the church would have uh, been doing what they were supposed to, the world wouldn't be where it'd be right now. That's right. Yeah, but uh, the other thing is uh, today I I was uh, I was at the shop you know at work and I one of my coworkers was talking and got a call a Zoom call from uh, one of the high schools daughter got in trouble and uh, I guess you know there was some something was going on but anyways it was loud enough to where everybody in the shop can hear and what was going he you know he came out and shared it with us he couldn't believe it that the teacher and we overheard that teacher she was more focused on telling him that his daughter shouldn't be saying cowboy and cowgirl, that she should be saying cow person. Are you serious? Yes. That was the, that was the whole meaning of that call because, and why she got in trouble. She got um, in trouble over that. Wow. Right. But, wow. but my main question was, do you, do you think that, uh, this, all this wokeism and, uh, narcissism is a form of paganism? Yes. I, I actually did the last week's prophecy update on the return of paganism and um, at the heart of paganism is, is what? That the person acts on their, uh, their instincts without any boundaries, okay? So if they wanna have sex and they want it now, they go out and do it with whatever, whoever, yada, yada, yada. That's paganism. That's what paganism does. Paganism tries to, to bring the person down into the creation and being one with the tree, the rock, and, and, and basically, in, in doing so, they feel that they're harmonizing with nature, okay? And in order to harmonize with nature, nature doesn't have any rules. Nature doesn't have any boundaries. And so they, 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 they almost turn animalistic, okay? Animalistic in the fact that they're gonna act as an animal acts based on their, their drive. So that's what paganism does. 
And paganism then, at the, at the same time, tries to control the creation as well, using sorcery. And, and so they try to manipulate creation for their own benefit. So a, a clear example of paganism is when a transgender is manipulating and like cutting parts off of them, manipulating to be something else. They're trying to control nature, but it's really not control, right? It's them manipulating themselves to see that they can fit into nature here instead of how God made them. So there's where the manipulation of nature comes from. And so they'll do that. The other manipulation of nature, why paganism has rampant sexual immorality, because there's boundaries on sexual immorality and there's power behind sexual, sexuality in marriage and metaphysical aspects to it. But here's the thing. They wanna use that which was created by God in, an, in a pagan sense with no boundaries in order to manipulate sexual uh, expression to what they wanna do and, and, and get the same experience but going out of the model, if that makes sense. And that is a manipulation of nature. So for instance, uh, I don't wanna be graphic, but sex between the same genders doesn't work. I don't know why people can't figure that out. The plumbing's wrong, okay? All the plumbing's wrong, and yet they act as if the plumbing works, don't they? Like there's no, that's not a big, what's the big deal? Oh, it's a big deal because paganism takes that which is God, debases it, puts no boundaries on it, and tries to use it in other forms to manipulate nature. So they're trying to manipulate nature, God's nature, okay, God's nature, trying to manipulate nature to fit whatever proclivities of hedonism they have. And therefore they have to take something and manipulate it and change it into something it's not designed for. And hence, uh, lesbians and gays, it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's a total, that's paganism. That's what paganism does. And, and whether you have to fake it, whether you have to fantasize about it, or you actually chop body parts off of you to make it happen, that's called manipulating nature. And it's just raw paganism. That's nothing but raw paganism. And uh, it's, it's, it's happening. So if that makes sense, I don't know if it did, but. Um, yeah, Pastor, uh, was, Satan is the ultimate narcissist. He loves narcissism. Was it used to get Eve? Is that the ultimate? He wants everyone to become like God. Don't trust God. Is that the main message Satan's using in this world today? Yeah, because um, if um, the first commandment, there's only really one commandment in Satanism. And Satanism is do what makes you feel good. Um, and so in that commandment right there, as you can see in Satanism, it's a commandment of, uh, of become God. And basically, how, how, how did Adam and Eve become God-like in that sense? Because he, he, did, he did tell a form of the truth with a lie. Because they will die. Because he said, no, you won't die. That's a lie. But he, they would start knowing good and evil, and they did, didn't they? Okay? 
So there was that. So here's what, what Satan is, is, is um, tempting them with. It's not just simply to be a narcissist. That's the hidden part. That's the negative part. The, the, that's the underlying thing. The skin of the lie is veiled with the concept that you can be autonomous. And autonomous means I can call my own shots. I can decide what is good and, and evil for me. Okay? So if you get to the point where you have decided what is good and bad for you, you are now, in effect, pretending you're God, faking it, if you want to call it, and that's, you know, people will, will, will couch it in, I'm just following my heart, you know, that, that, you know I, I'm just doing what makes me feel good or whatever it is. But underneath that veneer is narcissism. And narcissism ultimately says, I'm God. So I will make the decisions of the life. I'm the captain of my own ship. And, and the way I see that is not that they're trying to be a God to everyone else. They're being a God unto themselves. I will say, I will determine what's good and right for me. And if I determine changing my, my sex is right for me, then I will do so. That's acting as God, erasing the boundaries between God and man. And then to do that, I've got to go pagan and erase the boundaries between me and creation and, and manipulate creation to make that fit. And so I gotta have, I gotta chop off body parts in order to pretend that in the fantasy, in the unreality, if, if that makes sense. And, uh, and so Paul, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head. That's exactly what he, but he's not gonna tell them you're gonna become a narcissist. He's just gonna say, you just called the shots. Don't let, it, don't, don't let that old religion tell you what to do. They're wrong. They're the old religion, this is how the demons phrase it, the old religion is restricting your freedom. The old religion is restricting your freedom. We just want the freedom to do anything we want to do. What, okay, so unpack that life for me. When Satan says, all I want you to do is be happy and be free, I don't want you to have to be under the control of God. All I'm trying to do from you, this side point is to let you be free. Be free to, who, to be who you are. What would you say in reaction to that if you heard that from a demon's mouth? Is God's laws actually causing servitude to you? Is God's laws enslaving you? Is God's laws trying to control you? So why obey? Are you just obeying another sir, uh, master and you really technically don't have freedom? Because you're not living life to the, the fullest because he's restricting you on having sex with any person you want. He's restricting you on your gender. Is he really doing that? Is he restricting you on having, you know, the kind of trip you want to take, uh, you know, or whatever? Uh, you know, I'm talking about like a drug trip, not a real trip. Um, <laughs> is he, is he, you, know, it, you know, when he says, be fruitful and multiply and have kids, is he restricting your singleness? You see what I'm saying? What are God's laws for? The real answer is God's laws are put down to free you from being worse. They actually create the ability for you to do good, to function 
in a reality that he created normally. So the rules are like the instruction manuals of how to put together a toy for your kid. If you don't follow the instruction manuals, it won't work. You won't be able to put it together. So all he's doing with his laws, and that's the way you have to see it, the laws are meant to keep you restricted from going out of bounds and destroying yourself. So when you obey, you are then truly free when you obey. When you disobey, you're enslaved. But see, notice how Satan twisted that and turned it the other way. So no, 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 no. He's enslaving you, I'm setting you free. You see the difference? He's twisting that. But the culture believes it, doesn't they? Don't they? They believe that having freedom of sexual expression is truly freedom and that we are the prudes that want to restrict their sexual activities. That's how they see it. And until they reverse that mindset and not see God as a constrictor of their freedom, but a giver of their freedom, they're never going to understand the morality at all. That's why they don't get it. They don't get morality, and that's why they gravitate to paganism. They're just going to do whatever makes them feel good. Brett, or Claudia. Uh, Pastor Brendan, um, one thing, I'm just piggybacking on what you had mentioned earlier. Um, I've also noticed another trend of um, people, um, you know, especially after the revivals and everything else, that they are more concerned around, you know, praise and worship and versus receiving the true, you know, the full counsel of God. Sure. Um, and if we don't have these elaborate, you know, very musical and, um, you know, showy type of worship bands that yeah. they don't want to participate even though they claim to want to know more and want to be more involved in the Lord. Yeah. Um, but that's not really my question. My question is in reference to the transgenderism. Okay. Um, is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is this a form of or a type of antichrist spirit in the sense that they deny God and in denying God that they deny the creating of you know, man and woman and then kind of snowballing into, um, then of course, if they deny that, then they're denying Christ. That's a form of an oh, antichrist. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you're making a good point. I'll answer both questions, though. Let's take the antichrist question first. Absolutely. Let me explain how it is antichrist spirit. The spirit of lawlessness is already at work, Paul says. It's already out there. It's already working. What is the spirit of lawlessness doing? It's creating the environment that's suitable for the antichrist to rule and reign from. So the environment has to be prepped prior before the Antichrist gets here. So that's why Paul says the spirit of Antichrist is already at work or the spirit of lawlessness is at work. Okay, what does that mean? What does lawlessness, lawlessness mean? It means not anarchy. It means another moral law decided by Satan. It's Satan's morals, okay? If you want, from the biblical standpoint, we would call that immorality, right? But understand what lawlessness is. It's the complete opposite of that which God says. So Isaiah codifies this, and he says Israel's acting like this, and he says, woe to you, for you call good evil and evil good, right? Okay, that's lawlessness, which means God says transgenderism is wrong. Satan, in his morality, says, no, it's right. God says, no, homosexuality is wrong. Satanism will say, no, it's right. 
So when you see the embracing of transgender, that is the spirit of Antichrist because it's going opposite of what God would say. And any other immoral thing that you see in the culture is the spirit of Antichrist. And, and the spirit of Antichrist, what is he trying to do? He is trying to create a kingdom, a counterfeit kingdom of the kingdom that Messiah will usher in, but he's ushering in it first, and then he will set the parameters and the rules in this kingdom and the morality of him, of his morality, okay? And that's what he's trying to accomplish now. So the ground has to be set first before that. Now, second thing, music. Isn't it funny? Because I've done research on music of, of ancient paganism, whether that's in Africa, whether that's in Greece, whether that's in Rome, whether that's in ancient Mesopotamia, uh, Sumer, whatever, okay? What you'll notice in ancient paganism is they will use music to whip people into a hyper-suggestible state, hands down. I don't care what culture you're in, they will do it, okay? So what we notice in pagan music is there's a beat typically behind the scenes that's very pronounced, okay? And whether that is going to the ancient Hawaiians dancing around a fire, beating drums or whatever, or going to a place in Africa where they're dancing around a fire, beating a drum, or whether you're going into Greece and they'll beat a drum, there's always the beating of the drum. And that beat, if it's loud enough, starts putting people into altered states of consciousness if it's kept going for a long time over and over again. And then they get whipped up into a frenzy and they lose their minds. Okay, second, the, the kind of music that will go with that is a typical music that draws out emotions rather than thoughts. Okay? So typical pagan music draws out emotions, whereas biblical music draws out thoughts. So when you look at the Psalms, which are music, you want to know what music is, that's the music. If you look at the Psalms, what are the Psalms saying? It's regardless of what, I mean, it was typically with, um, oh, the instrument David played, I can't remember. Well, it was a harp, a lyre. There you go, a lyre. Small looking harp type of thing. Uh, you know, proto-guitar type thing. So he's strumming that, but there wasn't like this, all this behind this. It was just him strumming that and saying the words. And when he sang those songs, it gave the idea of thinking about God. Okay? So the music is meant to not draw emotion, but to draw thinking out about God as you're singing the music. Now... Add that to modern day music, okay? If you have multiple repetition, a major beat behind that, okay? And then you have music that elicits emotions instead of theology thoughts, that's paganism. That's flat out paganism. And then, let me add another thing to it. When you add it more than probably 30 minutes, maybe 25, past 25 minutes, it starts putting in people into an altered state. If they listen that long and they're in it and, and what you see with those who get really into it, 
they lose themselves in the music, that's a problem. When you start losing and you're thinking that's worship and you're losing yourself in the music, that means something else is controlling you at that point. You're not holding back your thoughts, your emotions, and you're not in control anymore. And you'll start seeing this in worship music and they allow it, okay? So the person's getting lost. And if you, you go on for an extended period of time, past 25 minutes, 30, 40, 40, 45 minutes, which some churches do, it's more music than any preaching whatsoever. Um, then by the time you're done with the worship, anything this guy says from the pulpit, anything, because you've been put into auto state, because you've been put into um, a, uh, a non-thinking state, and an emotional state, anything he says to you, the, 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 the congregational belief because what's happened is through the music, you lower the barriers down. You lower, you lower all moral constraint, you lower all thinking, and it goes down to the base instincts of a human being, and at that point, you're at, like an animal at that, at that point. And your just instincts are taking over. Look, instincts are God-given, but if you have no thinking with your instincts, you're on an animal level at that point. And that's what these, this, the current music situation is doing, and no one's picking up on that. And then, obviously, the bad lyrics. Obviously, there's a lot of bad lyrics, false theology in the lyrics. But I don't think most people even listen to the lyrics. Because there's like, I don't know, I don't know how many, 80% of the songs out there we can't even play because the lyrics are false theology. We can't even play them in church. So we, people say, why don't you play that song? Because if you listen to it, it's false theology. And we can't play it. And, and so this whole music thing starts taking over and it's, it's taken over the church and really what it is is paganism. And look, when I studied the Greeks and their music, that is exactly what they did to intentionally put people in altered states of consciousness. They intentionally did it and they knew it did it to them. And then what would happen at these, these pagan festivals? You know what starts happening? They would take off all their clothes and then we start having sex with each other. It's the same thing that happened with Aaron's calf, with the golden calf. They went berserk. And so, okay, what, what, so, so that, that's not a mistake that that happened. That, that you go down to your animal instincts, you strip off your clothes like an animal. Animal doesn't have clothes. And then you go sexualize everyone around you. That is as rank as paganism gets. That's paganism. But what's the difference between that and the culture? What's the difference? It's not. It's paganism. It's just not around a fire and mud huts. That's the only difference. It's still at that level. Okay. Good question, though, Claudia. Long answer. I'm sorry. But... So, um, well, that, well, let's just let's call it a night, I guess, because we went way, way long, and um, I'm sorry about that, but you know, you, sometimes you get into topics worth you know, diving into and looking at. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember... Keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.